to Acts chapter 6. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. We come to chapter 6 this morning, and if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now, and you just wave to them. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked right to our passage that we're studying this morning. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. So wonderful to hear the Word of God, uh, but wonderful to in addition to read it with our own eyes and see it uh, on the page. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. And therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you now formally in prayer for the release of Pastor Saeed and the other three prisoners as well. And Lord, you know that he is a a figurehead and a representative of Christians who are persecuted less publicly and less seen all around the world. And we thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that his release and your continued work through his life means to them and to all of us. Coming out of what he has come out of, Lord, and then to be reintroduced into the Western world, reintroduced into normal life and marriage and fatherhood and all of these things, he is going to need a miracle of your Holy Spirit on top of the release to just be his comforter and to be his strength, to be his counselor, and to be his wisdom, even as we've sung here today, for navigating that reintroduction, Lord, and the continuation of your wonderful call upon his life. We pray for that same grace to be upon his family, upon his wife, and upon his children as well. We thank you this morning for your word to be able to turn to. And Lord, all of the truth that is bound up in it, every single portion of it, is important to our equipping as your people in this world. And we thank you, Lord, as we look around the world and we see things that seem as if they're immovable and they will always be here, great cities, magnificent cities and oceans and mountain ranges, and yet you tell us that one day all of those things are going to melt with a fervent heat and give way to a new heaven and a new earth. But your word will never pass away. We thank you for the privilege of having your word in the human history, to have a Bible in our hands, to have the Holy Spirit in our heart and in this room and eager to take the truth of your word 
off of the printed page and to build it into our lives and how we see and how we hear and how we think and how we process and how we serve, Lord. And we pray that you would do that very thing with these seven verses in each of our hearts this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage of Scripture that we study this morning may not warm our hearts uh, devotionally or it may not meet some uh, felt need within our lives, but it does accomplish something very important in our lives as Christians in providing each of us with needed insights and understanding concerning how a local church like this or any local church operates and why it does so. I think that probably most of us in this room have been around church or around the things of the Lord for a sufficient length of time that we've come to know who and what deacons are and what uh, pastors are and elders are and how they operate together and what their focus is to be and what their responsibilities are. But not everyone has known the Lord for decades or even known the Lord for years. And then sometimes a person here is a brand new Christian. They don't understand how all of this works or why it works the way that it does and why in the world take years figuring it out or never figuring it out when a Bible study can help us get our bearings right away. And what's contained in these verses here that we're looking at this morning is always a good reminder for all of us who are very well versed in all of these things already. It helps all of us to make sure that our expectations of a church are biblical and that our expectations of a local church do not exceed what the Bible says that we can expect of that local church by placing upon it expectations that are impossible, expectations which will leave us then continually upset with or critical of the church we attend or of churches in general. Of this thing called expectation, William Shakespeare wrote, expectation is the root of all heartache. Expectation is the root of all heartache. Now, that quote is ascribed to him all over the internet, but the fact of the matter is it's a misquotation. Here's what Shakespeare actually wrote. Oft expectation fails, and most oft where, it most, where most it promises, and oft it hits where hope is coldest and despair most sits. Now, that might be a little bit obtuse for some of us this morning. So thankfully, somebody on the Internet, a blogger, updated Shakespeare's quote in the following way. Yo, dog, I hear you be expecting things. And judging how little a reaction I got from Shakespeare's quote from you and the stronger reaction that I got from this blogger, I realize what kind of an audience I'm dealing with here today. And certainly Shakespeare's rolling over in his grave. So often I think people are continually disappointing us when in fact the blame lies with impossible expectations that we seem to continually 
place upon people, and so too with the church. There was another quote as I was looking at different quotes during the week in this regard that I liked, and one man wrote this. He said, when you stop expecting people to be perfect, you can like them for who they are. When you stop expecting people to be perfect, you can like them for who they are. And what is true of people is also true of churches. The context of the passage that we're studying this morning is found in verse… and so let's… we want to begin here by looking at the fact in verse 1 that we cannot ever expect a church uh, to find a church without problems. There are always going to be problems, even when, as is the case here in Acts chapter 6, everything is going great in the church. And because the reason is, is because a church is made up of people, and people have problems. Every single one of us have brought problems into this room, every single one of us individually. Whether the, whatever degree anyone might put on those problems, that's a different story. But we all bring problems everywhere we go in life. And there's a lot of truth to the old saying, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. We all have problems and we bring them to church with us. Now, the context of this passage is found in verse 1. The church in Jerusalem is experiencing rapid growth. And you notice the Holy Spirit's use of the word multiplying. The number of people who were being saved can no longer be encapsulated in the word that he has used in the book of Acts up to this point, and that is people being added to the church. He's used the word addition up to this point, but now he uses the word multiplication. The growth that is happening in the church is dramatic, so things could not have been going better in that front for this church. And yet in the midst of it, a complaint arose a grumbling, a dispute. The Hellenistic Jews felt that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution in comparison to the Hebraic widows. Remember from chapter 2 of the book of Acts and chapter 4 of the book of Acts that money was being given to the apostles by more prosperous Christians for the purpose of then helping other Christians in need. And apparently the apostles had set up what was known as the daily distribution, where on a daily basis those who were in need, and that would certainly include widows, were given food and other necessities. And this daily distribution was overseen by the apostles. But apparently... Whoever was overseeing the distribution on behalf of the apostles were giving a larger portion to the widows who came from a Hebraic background rather than a Hellenistic background. Now, Hellenistic Jews refer to Jews who came out of a Grecian background. They were still fully Jews, 100% Jews, but more often than not, they lived outside of Israel. So they were either born in Israel and then grew up the rest of their life and spent the rest of their life in the Gentile world of the Roman Empire, but they never ceased to be Jews. And then, or sometimes, uh, many, a large number of Jews were simply born outside of Israel, lived their entire lives uh, in the Gentile world, never coming uh, back to Israel, and not for any significant Uh, length of time. And so these Hellenistic Jews, they spoke Greek. They spoke very little Aramaic, the language of Israel at the time. 
They appreciated their Jewishness, but they also appreciated uh, the good things of the Gentile culture around them, and so, it, or at least they were exposed to it. And now, for whatever reason, probably at least for these widows, now they're getting older in life, and they decide that though they've spent their Jewish life in the Gentile context most of their lives, now as they're getting ready to die, they want to return to Israel or go to Israel and die there in the land. And so, now for whatever reason, they're back in Jerusalem. And the Hebrews were Jews who were born and raised in Israel, and they had all of the pride that was associated with that kind of thing. They spoke Aramaic and uh, very little Greek, and so often they spoke very little Greek on purpose, deliberately, even though it cost them in terms of economic expansion. They wanted nothing to do with the Gentile world. They didn't like change. They didn't trust anything that had its origin in the Gentile world. If it didn't come from Israel, I don't want it and I don't need it. And so you've got these two groups within Christianity, even among the widows, and you've got the one that thought the others to be compromisers and worldly, and then the other thought the others to be arrogant and proud and self-righteous, and nothing new under the sun. Same thing goes on in the body of Christ today, and God was happy to save both of them in both groups. And so here is the charge of discrimination and the potential for a very, very deep division to occur in the early church. But in reality, behind all of the specifics of this problem, what you have here are essentially growth pains. And every growing or developing church in church history has faced them and faces them today, where the more people there are in the church, the more needs there are and the more problems there are, and thus an expansion of leadership is necessary. The number of leaders that are required in a church of 200 uh, is not adequate to oversee and to attend to the needs of a church of 600. As the church grows larger, then so do the ranks of both the leaders and the servants. That has to grow as well. And at the time when the apostles had implemented the daily distribution, they could manage its oversight well enough. But now the church was literally multiplying in terms of size, and they realized that they needed additional help. And the solution... When the apostles found out about the problem, they realized that the problem was more than they could give time or attention to without then neglecting their primary calling, which they refer to as prayer, the study of God's Word, and then to minister and teach the Word of God. And so they sought out seven men who could oversee and administer this important ministry. And essentially, we've got here uh, the very early birth and beginnings of what is known today as the office of a deacon within a church. And so let's talk for a moment about the function and the importance of deacons. How many of you woke up this morning and you said, oh boy, I hope the pastor's going to talk about the importance and the function of deacons at church today? The apostles summoned the multitude of the disciples and commanded that seven men be chosen from among them to take over the responsibility of the ministry of the daily distribution. And the requirements that they laid out are interesting, and it's fascinating to notice it. And you look at what was required in the early church, and ought to always be the case all the way through church history, what they required and the standard that they set for simply to wait on tables, 
simply to hand out food in Jesus' name from one person to another, not to teach a Bible study, not to counsel someone who's on the verge of suicide or their marriage is about to collapse, but someone who is simply going to distribute food. Here was the requirements, that these seven should come among you, that is, that they should be Christians. Second, that they should be men of good reputation. They needed to have a good reputation both within the church and outside of the church. They walked the talk both in the church and outside of the church. They needed to be men full of the Holy Spirit, that is, Spirit-controlled men, spiritual men. So often we think today it's the proverbial joke related to the deacon that you give the title of, uh, of a deacon to someone who is wealthy or powerful within the community. They're not necessarily a terribly spiritual person, but you want to keep them around for the resources that they bring into the church. I'm not saying it's right. It's carnal as can be. And so how best to do it to give them the office of a deacon and make them a deacon in a church and hold them in in that way. You hook them in. But here we see the office of a deacon requires a deeply spiritual person. Never look at in looking at elders or deacons or any office within a church and say, well, there's the deacons. They couldn't cut it and become elders. That's not it at all. It's a completely different calling. It's a completely different focus that they have. And the deacons were to be spiritual men, spirit-controlled men, and forthful of wisdom. They were wise with godly wisdom. They knew their Bibles and how to apply it to the practical situations in life. They were able to look at a physical situation and not only uh, know what to do, but then how to do it in a way that was right, that was biblical, that looked like Christ. And God wants His people to be served always by spiritual people, whether it's someone who is teaching a Bible study or leading a home fellowship or giving someone a box of food in Jesus' name. And the office of a deacon is a very, very special calling, and it requires spiritual men and women because they're ministering to people on a very practical level. In their calling, it's never supremely about food or the physical thing that they're doing. It's about the people who are on the other side of this thing that they're doing, and they never lose sight of that. And that's the burden of their, uh, of their heart. They realize that they are dealing with people in dealing with the things that they're dealing with. And the office of a deacon is a calling, and it has a gifting that goes way, way beyond servanthood. It isn't just enough to be willing to be a deacon or willing to be a servant or someone who's willing to do the dirty work. There's an element of leadership that's involved as well. Otherwise, they would have just simply said to the uh, group of disciples, just grab the seven quickest Uh, guys that are just hanging around and grab them and put them over this. But they didn't just do that and delegate this to them. It was a specific kind of person meeting a certain kind of qualification with a certain call upon their life. Now, the function of deacons in a church, and deaconesses as well, uh, Phoebe is mentioned in Romans chapter 16 as a deaconess in the early church. A deacon's focus and calling centers upon the physical and the logistical needs of a church and of the Christians who attend there, whereas the office of an elder focuses on the spiritual needs of a church and those who attend it. So deacons make sure that the facility, the church is clean, 
They make sure that it's in good repair. They make sure that the heat is on in the winter, uh, anticipating the arrival of God's people for church services, and then the air conditioning in the summer. They oversee the ushers. They oversee the deacons. They make sure that the coffee is out. They make sure that security is in place. They make sure that there's roamers on the property and people out in the parking lot. They make sure that the sound ministry is ready to go when God's people arrive at church, setting up tables and chairs for church, but not only for church, but also for weddings and funerals and other special events in the fellowship hall and wherever it might be. They manage the food bank of a church and so forth. And whatever needs to be done of a physical nature, that will then allow the pastors and the elders to give their time and their focus to the ministry of the Word and prayer, then that's what the deacons do. So that in a church setting like this, then the elders can pray with people, they can teach people, and they can counsel people. And this office of a deacon is a necessary office and a necessary ministry within a church. And I'll tell you, I think... It's one of the most deeply satisfying callings that God can ever put upon a person's life. I used to be a deacon early in my Christian life in Calvary Chapel of Napa, and I loved it. And I look fondly upon it with every remembrance that I have of being a deacon. It was one of the most peaceful and satisfying things I have ever done in the body of Christ. Here I am, 25 years old, and just getting going with the Lord. And I start come to this church, Calvary Chapel of Napa, and after just a few weeks, no more than a handful or two handfuls, I look around and I realize I come into this place and it's spotless. There's no litter. There's no old bulletins in the pews. Everything is clean. Everything is vacuumed. The bathrooms are immaculate. There are people at the doors to greet me. The grounds have no litter on them at all. And I realize to myself, this doesn't just happen. Someone is doing this for me. And I thought about all of the work behind it, and I then found a deacon. I didn't know he was a deacon at the time, but it seemed like he was in that kind of a capacity, had, uh, was in charge of something, and I went up to him. His name was Jim Knudsen, and uh, still serving the Lord to this day, and I said to him, I said, what can I do to help? I see all of this done for me week in and week out. What can I do to be a part of what I'm enjoying? And he said to me, well, if you're willing to come an hour before the service and then stay an hour after the services, we have plenty for you to do. And it opened up a whole world to me of vacuums and garbage cans and picking up litter and handing out bulletins and cleaning up bathrooms and cleaning pews and making sure the temperature of the room was proper and the heating and the air conditioning and the coffee table. And, and then after a while they ended up making me a deacon. And all of these things, the vacuums, the garbage can, the litter, the, and the uh, cleaning up of all of these things, all of it continued now as a deacon, plus being at the back door of the sanctuary during the services where that was one of the positions that I had. So in, even as we have in this room right now, three men at the back doors, they're heavily armed. You cannot get out once you come in <laughs> to the church service. But why are they there? Why do they sit on these elevated thrones that they sit on in the back of the room? No, they're elevated because they're looking over the room. 
not with a critical heart or a critical spirit, but just to see, is everyone doing okay? Is anyone having a crisis? Is something developing that might need a little bit of attention? And they're tending us, even in this room, looking after us, even in this room. And so I was so often, and it was my regular post to be at the main door on which people came and went at Calvary Chapel of Napa, and people would leave, and part of my responsibility was make sure that the door wouldn't slam and, and uh, that I could open it for them if they did need to leave. For a lot of people, it was three cups of coffee, and they didn't estimate how long the sermon would be at a Calvary Chapel. And so um, they struggled until they could struggle no more and then had to make their way to the restroom. We all understand something about that. Anyone over 50 does, anyway. <laughs> and then sometimes people were just upset. I'd open the door up for them, sometimes a personal problem that they had or whatever it might be, and I'd say, you doing okay? Are we going to be all right? Can, can walk you to the car or anything like that? Some people were upset about what got taught or what got said or whatever it might be, and I'll tell you, I've been yelled and screamed at by Christians. I'll tell you as a deacon, both men and women. But in that place, I developed some of the most important and deepest relationships in my Christian life. And these men remain my friends to this day. And we became a band of brothers who looked at that church and looked at that place, and we said to ourselves, when God's people come into this place, they're going to find it clean, they're going to find the heat on in the winter, and they're going to find the air conditioning on in the summer, and everything is going to be done for them so they don't have to think about one thing when they come here except to fellowship with God and to fellowship with one another. And it was so fun to work behind the scenes and all that way and then watch people come in, three services on a Sunday morning, another one on Sunday night, another one on Wednesday evening, and watch them come in and go out and come in and go out and come in and go out and come in and go out just on a Sunday alone and have them never know what went on behind the scenes for all of that to happen. All they knew is that somebody cared. All they knew is that what they walked into was right. And that happens in this church as well. And it's the deacons who are behind it. Now, some of you have that call upon your life. And I would encourage you to step out into it. Don't wait till you're 30. Don't wait till you're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 in order to do that. Don't wait till you know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Take the step out into that area. If you sit and you say, listen, if you ever put me up in a place where I'm speaking in front of three people or 300 people, go ahead and shoot me now because I'll have a heart attack and be in glory. And so I want nothing to do with that. The burden of my heart is to work behind the scenes, do the physical things. I'll get more of a satisfaction out of taking care of people and them not even knowing that I exist than any pastor would ever get out of any sermon that he would ever deliver under the greatest anointing of God. And maybe God's got that calling upon your life. And talk with me. Talk with one of the pastors to see about how to get rolling in your calling around here. And I just encourage you, especially you younger men, don't wait. Don't wait forever to take these steps. You're qualified. You're ready. You're called. Take the step. And it is a 
great and deeply satisfying calling. And one of the promises, uh, and God promises to richly reward that calling. Paul wrote to Timothy in this regard concerning deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he said, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. How many of you, don't shout out, no need to raise your hand, but how many of you, one of the two or three or four greatest impacts in your spiritual life were deacons? They weren't the elders, though the elders had their place. It was just that man who was in his place week in and week out for decades within a local church. And every week you saw him there and you knew he continued to walk with God for another week and it gave you hope that you could do it for another week in your life. And, and you saw the stability of the life. You saw no hunger for glory, no hunger to be seen, and here they were in God's Spirit, kind of the rock of Gibraltar. And though they never preached a sermon with their lips, they preached it continually through their lives. It's the power of the calling. It's the power of the office and the importance of it. The passage also teaches us a lot about the function importance of the office of a pastor or elder within the church in verse 2 and in verse 4. And their focus is to be upon the spiritual needs of a church. As the apostles declare here, they are to give themselves to prayer. They are to give themselves to the ministry of the Word, whether it's in the study of the Word and then in the preparation of Bible studies or in the teaching and preaching of the Word of God to a group of people or further still, in ministering the Word of God one-on-one -on -one in a personal discipleship relationship or in counseling. And it is the deacons within the church that allow the elders then uh, to uh, make this their focus and to keep this their focus. The roles are not uh, in any way competitive. They're completely complementary. And, of course, both elders and deacons are servants above everything else. If a catastrophe happens in the church or there's a spill or there's a toilet that's overflowing or whatever the need might be in a person's life, any and all of us simply drop everything that we're doing. There's no these hard lines of demarcation between the two offices. We're all servants at our core, and we step in and we meet that particular need. That's, that's how it works. But ideally, this is how things should be within a church. I think that it's important to realize that many, if not most, at least in my experience, that many, if not most, pastors feel enormous guilt not over being lazy or sluggard in the ministry. I don't know any lazy pastors. But they feel guilty over just the opposite in their lives. At digging in and saying no to even good things in order to maintain these things as the highest priority in our calling. And there is enormous pressure today to do everything else, and then give the leftovers to prayer and to study of the Word in the ministry of the Word of God. Pressure to go to every meeting in the church, every meeting in the community, to have a personal relationship with every single member of the congregation, or to meet any and every expectation and demand that anyone chooses to place upon the pastor. 
And it's a real pressure. And it's a real part of the calling. There's an old humorous description of the ideal pastor that uh, summarizes it tongue-in-cheek, but summarizes it in a way. Here's the description of the ideal pastor. The ideal pastor preaches exactly 20 minutes with an hour's content. He condemns sin, but he never hurts anybody's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. to midnight and also serves as the church janitor. He makes $40 a week and wears good clothes and donates $30 a week to the church. He's 29 years old and has 40 years of experience. He's a strong leader, yet also follows everyone's advice. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers, and he spends most of his time with senior citizens. He makes 15 house calls a day, regularly visits the hospital, and is always available in his office. The perfect pastor always has time for church council and all of its committees. He never misses a meeting of any church organization and is always busy evangelizing the lost. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates, in one week you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. Have faith in this letter. One church broke the chain and got its old pastor back in less than three months. <laughs> like all good humor, it's funny because it has a ring of truth to it. But concerning the pastor, when does he get to pray? And where does he then find the time to learn the Bible and to study the Bible and then to put and then further time to prepare a sermon out of that prayer and out of that study of the Word of God? It doesn't just happen. It has to come from somewhere. I remember a conversation that I had with a local pastor many years ago now. I pulled into the Chevron station on Cisco Road, and I was going to get some gas, and he pulled up uh, near me and to get gas as well. And at the time, I had been attending the prayer meetings among pastors and other church workers here in Modesto. It was sponsored by the Greater Modesto Ministerial Association, and, and, it, and God was doing a very, very wonderful thing through that association and through those meetings as time was given to prayer. And, getting to meet one another, and I was thankful for those meetings, thankful for those pastors, thankful for what happened in my life through them, thankful for what was happening in all of them. But I had stopped attending, and this pastor who had become kind of an acquaintance as a result of, of the, the meetings, good-naturedly, he chided me for no longer attending. And then he informed me that I had a reputation among the pastors for being aloof, and not really caring about them, uh, fellowshipping with other pastors in town. And I told him that I felt that his assessment was judgmental, and I felt that his caricature was very, very unfair, but that I really did enjoy getting together with the pastors, and that there wasn't a pastor in this town that I wouldn't call in a moment's notice for help, and there isn't a pastor who, if he called me, I wouldn't do everything I could for to help him. And I explained to him that I had made a commitment to God earlier in my calling as a pastor that when doing anything, even a good thing, 
began to compete and put pressure on my devotional time with God to start the day, then I would say no to that thing. And I told him that I was in that place, and so I was saying no to good things to say, some, to say yes to a better thing related to my life. And what future was there for a church whose pastor was not staying current in his relationship with God through the reading of the Word and through prayer? And then I went on to tell him that my responsibilities not only included not only significant time and prayer for the congregation on a daily basis, but in study and in sermon preparation, but also in the oversight of the church as well, and that further still, I wasn't only a pastor in life, but that I was also a husband, and I was also a father of young children, and that like everyone else in life, I had to keep my own car running and mow my own lawns to say nothing of maintaining relationships with extended family and friends and all of the emergencies and all of the demands that are a part of that. And I think that all of this can seem self-serving this morning, but trust me, it isn't. This is the portion of every pastor who's serious about their calling, and they simply cannot do everything. And I speak on their behalf as well as my own. And, I'm not on, and I certainly am not preaching to you as a congregation, and much less exhorting you in this regard. You have been wonderful in this regard all through the years. I simply say it because it needs to be said. This calling is a workaholic's dream. The in-basket is never empty. It is never low. It is always full. And there is this unending flow of problems and demands and needs and emergencies, and all of that is exactly as it should be. But a passage like this is a gift from God to the pastor of a church as an encouragement to keep these things, prayer and ministry of the Word, as the priority of our calling, and then to make whatever changes are needed in order to protect that. And to realize that if we do, we can not only not need to feel guilty about doing it, but that God will honor it. And I think that the other great passage of Scripture that's a great encouragement to elders and to pastors in this regard was spoken by Jesus to the Apostle Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee following Jesus' resurrection from the dead and recommissioning Peter back into his office as an apostle. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And how wonderful it is that a pastor can look at the time that is so much alone in the calling, related to prayer and related to Bible study and the preparation of messages and so forth, and to realize and, and needing a passage like this to remind us that we don't have to feel guilty about it, but it's one of the greatest ways that we have of expressing our love to the Lord and to the church, to the body of Christ here as well. 
how relieved I was recently in reading a book by Pastor R. Kent Hughes. He is the author of a series, a commentary series that none of you would be disappointed in if you made it a, the cornerstone of your uh, library. He also wrote Disciplines of a Godly Man, a very well-known uh, book. But he pastored for many years and continues to do so in a different capacity today. But he wrote in this book that I was reading that it required, uh, it re that, that it required 24 or 25 hours a week for him to prepare his Sunday morning message. And what that did for me, I thought, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. This doesn't come easy to him any more than it comes easy to me. I was further relieved when listening to a message by Warren Wearsby delivered to pastors and recently listened to that. And he told everyone in the area of sermon preparation, uh, just as an encouragement, that the older you get, the longer it takes. <laughs> and then what do you do when in obedience to this passage you are preparing more than one Bible study? in a week. And it takes more than the conviction of the pastor to be able to maintain this priority in a church. It also requires an understanding congregation whose expectations are biblical regarding their pastors and their elders. And I can only speak for myself in saying that this calling of a pastor is not an easy one for me. There are many weeks I wish I was a deacon again and still working at the phone company. Many weeks. This calling is not an easy one for me, and I don't think it's an easy one for anyone that God puts in it. He always puts us ultimately in the calling that He has for our lives where there's this sense that we are completely in over our head in this calling, and if God doesn't come through, we're doomed. And if you've settled into a place of Christian service and serving the Lord and you aren't in that place, there's another place, another step for you to take because so much growth occurs in that place. But this is not an easy calling for me. I like the privacy. I like the behind the scenes of the deacon side of things. The, book, the Bible is a very, very deep book. And it doesn't come easy for me to understand. It takes a lot of work for me to understand a passage well enough with enough clarity to then try and make it simple and clear to the people that I'm going to share it with. Sermon preparation has never been easy for me. Again, I'm in way over my head on a weekly basis. And so I'm thankful for the encouragement of a passage like this to keep the ministry of the word and prayer, not only as a priority in my life, but as the priority. And it's good for all Christians to understand something of all of this, and that's why it's in the book. And this passage gives us insights into problems the early church faced and the birth of this new office known as deacons. But supremely, it is the record of how at a moment of great threat, 
to what God was blessing in the early church, the preaching and the teaching of God's Word that both the leaders and the congregation moved decisively to protect what God was blessing. And all of the good things that were happening in Acts chapter 6, the health of the church in Jerusalem, the multiplication of the church were occurring as a result of prayer and the ministry of the Word and the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God on a corporate and on an individual level. There is always pressure upon a church, including its leaders, to cease to keep the main thing the main thing and it requires a constant diligence and effort to keep that from happening, to keep the main thing the main thing no matter how important other things might be. It wasn't that the apostles felt they were too good to be involved in the daily distribution. It wasn't that the apostles felt they were too important to be involved in the daily distribution. They didn't. It's just that they couldn't do that and keep the church well-fed and well-directed spiritually at the same time. It wasn't that the daily distribution wasn't important. It was, and that's why they treated it as such. No one can read the Bible without being impacted by God's concern for the poor, for the powerless, for the widow, for the orphan. And that's precisely the point here, that if even that was not allowed to move the elders from their priorities, but to find another way for that to be met, then how much more should the same thing be done concerning all of the other lesser things that arise within a church that would tempt the elders of the church to abandon the priority of prayer and the ministry of the Word? It is vital that the main thing remains the main thing. It isn't the only thing. Nobody was saying that, and nobody is saying that. It wasn't the only thing, but it is the main thing from which all else flows and upon which all, everything else in the church depends. And the inevitable result of a failure to do so is prayerless pastors, Powerless pastors, biblically illiterate pastors, poor and unhelpful sermons, and poor biblical counseling. And the end result is a malnourished church that is adrift and no longer vitally connected to God. Let me say again, I am not addressing a historical problem in this church or a present problem in this church. I am not. But this is one of the blessings of going straight through the books of the Bible. You hit all manner of things, and each one of them necessary for us as Christians to be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And today, the times they are changing, my friend, and not in the way that Dylan sang of, but they are changing spiritually. And the trend is dramatic, and it is dangerous. And it is not toward prayer and the ministry of the Word as the priority in a church, but to displace those things with a dozen other things, sometimes good things in and of themselves, but never intended by God to be the foundation 
or the unifying force of a church because only prayer and the Word of God can provide that. And what did God think about this bit of organization and this bit of prioritization in the early church on the part of the apostles and the congregation? We don't have to guess. He tells us in verse 7 he liked it. And he strongly put his stamp of approval on what they did in this crisis that they faced. And we're told that God's Word as a result of this handling of the priorities in a proper way and the delegation of responsibility that God's Word and His truth continued to spread and people continued to be saved, including priests who were the toughest nuts of all to crack at that point in church history, and that God was good with all of it. He blessed it. And so he does today. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for this glimpse into church history found in these seven verses. What a dangerous crisis faced them. So easy to read over it in a matter of seconds and not realize what was happened, the choices that were made, what was protected as a result. And Lord, as you are fully aware, every church that exists in the whole wide world continually faces this crisis. And we pray for Calvary Chapel of Modesto. And we ask that you continue to bless us, and we pray that you would help us both as leaders and as a part of the congregation, a part of this church, all of us in our own place, in our own calling, to be an influence toward the keeping of the main thing, the main thing, Lord. That you might bless in the way that you want to bless. And we ask these things of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.